following audio is a Sunday sermon from Red Church in Blackburn, Australia. For more information about the church and its ministry, please go to www.redchurch.org.au. How good was to sing a carol. So great. Hey, thank you, Melody and the team. A beautiful transition. I love that it kind of just sneaks up on you and then, yeah, all of a sudden we're just singing an amazing chorus. So it sounded incredible in this room and just really powerful. I don't know about you, but I love Advent. I love it for that reason, being able to sing carols. I love, you know, having Christmas gatherings. I love ugly sweaters and jumpers that come along with that. Um, Yeah, it's such a wonderful time. It's really cool as a church family to journey together with the Advent readings and to kind of all be excited about this coming of Jesus. It's a really great time of year. Um, I don't know what Advent looks like for you usually, but for me, I try and do as much as I can to help me get into that kind of season. I actually have a whiteboard up at home with a whole bunch of events that I'm like, yes, gingerbread making, tick. I'm going to go see some carols. I want to go see the Nutcracker. I want to go to a market. Just everything that you could possibly do in Advent, I want to do it. And it's just a great, exciting time. Um, so yeah, great to have you here with us as we journey together as a church. Um, before we get started, I actually wanted to ask you a question before we jump into any text, um, just I want to ask you, what does Jesus' coming um, mean for you? What does Jesus' coming mean for you? We spend so much time in Advent preparing for it and going to different events, but let's pause for a minute and actually just ask, what's the significance of him coming? So I'm actually going to give you guys a few moments to sit with that question, to reflect on it. Write something down if you'd like, but let's just think about what it means that Jesus is coming. I'll leave you to it for a little bit. I think it's a really important question to consider at this time of year. And your answer would actually, or does, really reflect how you live your life in a way. It's that significant to think about Jesus is coming. We have our calendars set because of his life and... Yeah, what actually happens in your world when you think about Jesus coming? How does that make you live your every day? How often do we actually consider that? Have we forgotten? Do we often forget the power of following and belonging to Jesus? I love that Christmas is a time to remember that. The gift that he is. I, um, as I pondered this question myself, I didn't quite have an answer yet, but I actually... I was, this week, had to pop into Knox Shopping Centre, which I just, I really don't like centres in general. So I was like, right, quick, quick, get to the door, get in, get your thing, get out. I was like, right, I can do this. So I went in um, and went upstairs and I was kind of in the back part of Knox. There's not a lot happening back there. There's like a kid's playground. And I was on my way to the shops and I saw some Christmas decorations and I was like, oh, actually, it's really cool to live in a country where that's still a part of our culture, that there are Christmas decorations up and we are still celebrating it. And as I was walking um, to this shop, I happened to pass kind of like this giant snow globe thing. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Anyway, in there is Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. Cute. That's so nice. Um, I kind of walked back and just went to the shop and you know, started doing my shopping. And other thoughts kind of just came on. And then I got super frustrated because there was a line at the shops. And I'm like, oh, it's Christmas. <laughs> People everywhere. And Oh, the pressure of it all. And then my brain just naturally kind of wandered on. And I was like, I love Christmas, but do you know what? I find it so hard because sometimes it's a reminder, for me, of broken family. And I'm like, oh, that's tough. Anyway, so I walk out of the shop, these things kind of swirling around, and I walk past this snow globe again. And as I do, I feel like Jesus says to me, my heart also breaks for that. 
And that's actually why I came. To bring reconciliation, not just in your family, but in this world. That's the significance of my coming. And it was just a really powerful moment for me for that reason, hearing God say that, but also to realise how often, even in my own life, I've separated who God is and what he's doing in this world with my life and the way that we can just put him into a snow globe and put him on the third floor up the back in the dark. It's not much different to what they did or what he experienced when he entered this world in Bethlehem. We're still doing that as a society, unfortunately. But when did this happen? When did this separation happen? When did we start to have a faith that didn't actually impact our whole life? It's not unique in our time. There have been times throughout history where this has happened, but it's becoming very acute in our time. Sometimes our faith can look like just being like, cool, forgiveness of sins, I'm good, I'm covered. Or on the other end, actually, we just need to get rid of evil and work hard at that. But what happened to an intimate and deep day-to-day relationship that is transformative, that relationship with Jesus? What happened to that kind of faith? Where did that go? How have we missed that? Or we forget that? When did we lay it down? I think sometimes we live in these kind of two different streams. We think about the biblical story, and we're like, yeah, this is good, and we read it, and there are moments where it kind of impacts our life. You know, we kind of live along here being like, yeah, cool. Oh, that really spoke into my life. That's great. But actually, that's not the truth or the way we're meant to see the world. The crazy thing is, if our mind wasn't melted by the constant social media that we find ourselves in, if we lived back in the day when the Bible was actually your media, you'd see that when you read the Bible, there's echoes of things in that story that are in your story. If you begin to hear that and notice that more and more, and I don't know if you've picked that up as we've been doing our readings for Advent, there's this growing sense of hope and desperateness to have something change in this world. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's the same story. It's our story, the story of the grand narrative of the Bible. It's not something that we separate from. It's something we belong in, and that's continuing on. And although we consider ourselves to be progressing, we're still a people desperate for redemption. We're still a world crying out for healing and restoration, and we're still a people desiring reconciliation in our own lives, but also in the world around us. And so to look at this bigger story, we're going to look at a passage from the Old Testament tonight, for one of the readings that we've done this week. We're going to look at a passage um, in Isaiah, Isaiah 6. Um, it's actually on page 477 of the Maroon Bible, so if you want to get those ones out and head there, and I'll just give you a bit of a lead into that as you do. Um, Isaiah as a book is an incredible, incredible book. He was an amazing prophet, um, and a lot of his prophecies actually span over hundreds of years, which is very impressive if you, if you think about it. He's seen pretty far into what's going to happen. Um, it's a yeah, really rich book. There are numerous um, accounts of this in the New Testament. It's on Jesus' lips very often. Um, and it's just a book that is so worth kind of diving into, sitting with, um, because you know what? It's still speaking today. Um, there's still a sense of it being alive. Uh, just a historical context for you. Isaiah preached and lived in the southern kingdom of Judah in around the 8th century BC. So what's happening at this time? If you remember, you've had King David, great king, loved God, did a few things that weren't amazing. But still, King David, great guy. Then there was King Solomon, <laughs> 
also great guy, built the temple. Um, after that, after King Solomon, actually the kingdom actually split. And so there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and there were kings appointed in those areas. Um, and as I said, Israel, um, Isaiah sorry, lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, and that's where Jerusalem was. Unfortunately, the kings that were appointed continued to lead the people astray. And so there have been, you can read, there's prophet after prophet sent to them, um, calling them back to the way of God. So Isaiah begins his work in 740 BC, where Judah is still basking in a pretty prosperous time. They've, they've done pretty well, but Isaiah can see that that time's nearly up. Assyria is on the move, and they're coming to actually take over Judah. Um, Isaiah knows that the northern kingdom they're pretty much going to take, and so he's just hoping that actually Judah will turn around, they'll repent and believe that God is king, and that he will save them. And one of the main themes of Isaiah is that future hope and anticipation of a king. You see it peppered throughout his um, book. So in the first couple of chapters of Isaiah, it kind of describes the spiritual failure of God's people. Um, and Isaiah says in chapter 2, verse 5, he says to them, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But they refused. So it's only a radical act of God's grace that's going to change this, and that's kind of what we read in chapter 6. So there's a quick little history, little um, update of where we're at. So we're going to read chapter 6 together. It says, In the year that King Uzziah um, died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were all calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried out, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving, Make the heart of this people callous to make their, eye, their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, Hear with their ears, Understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the city is like ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. It's a big passage. There's a lot happening in there. It's a confronting passage, and one that I'm sure you've, well, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard preached on before. And there's a lot in there. But I'm just so thankful for that last verse that talks about that holy seed, the stump in the land. That's the promise of Jesus. That after all of this, um, the ravishing of the land, that actually there's still a promise. There's still hope in this. We actually know from two chronicles that Uzziah's reign was long and prosperous and God lavished on his people, but unfortunately they didn't handle it very well. So they continued to walk in their faith 
and do everything they were meant to, but God himself had become a little bit unreal to them. And so his death, Uzziah's death, marked the end of an era for them. And this generation, the crisis for them was the Assyria Empire coming in to take over. And the struggle they had was to work it out for themselves, how to defend themselves or to trust in God. That was their decision to make. Unfortunately, they just went through the motions of biblical faith. And when it came to the hard stuff of everyday life, they saw no relevance in God's help. How easy is it for us to forget God when things are going really well? When we live in a time and place just like then that is prosperous. How easy it is to forget that he's actually moving and calling us forward. And I think that's partly what verses 9 to 10 talk about. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. This nation have been told time and again. They've had prophets taught to them being like, return to God. Spend time with him. Learn from him. Follow him as your king and lord. But they become dull to that. He so wants to walk with them and desire to be with his people to see them freed. And we can see this throughout the biblical account. This is not just in Isaiah, but in the Old Testament and even in the New. This particular passage, Sarah mentioned it the other day, is actually in every gospel in the New Testament. There's there's a reason that we need to be listening to this. You know what else is really interesting? When Jesus uses it, when it's on his lips, he's not just speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to the people of the Jewish nation and also to his disciples, which means he's speaking to us as well. Do we realize the king who is in our midst? Do we realize and hear God calling us back? Raymond Orland says that every generation is tested at some point of felt urgency. And to us today, God freely offers himself as our most powerful ally. Whether or not we choose him is the story of our generation. He is moving and leading and constantly calling us back, but will we choose him? When we're speaking about generation here, it's not just Gen Y or Gen X. It's actually God's holy people. Will we choose him and and follow him and go back to him? As I said before, despite this difficult passage, there is hope. There's that last line, the holy seed and its stump that will grow. And this coming king that will provide a solution for the nations. And as you read Isaiah, you realize that he's speaking, of course, um, against Assyria and that there will be a king that will overcome that. But actually, not just that. His arrival, this king, will bring renewal of creation itself. There's a bigger vision, which is really exciting in this time. That promise of a seed is the manifestation of Jesus Christ. And can you believe we have the privilege of living in a time where we have seen that taking place? We live when Jesus has come back. We've seen God's faithfulness to his word, that there is a king who reigns and he's good and he leads us in the right ways. But do we realize the king is in our midst? The king in which we are celebrating this end of the year. And not only that, the reality that he is bringing. Or is it just another Christmas? Well, we've heard the story before. What if it's something different? What if God wants to say something different in this time? 
I love Isaiah for many reasons, um, but one of the most wonderful things about it is seeing how a prophet often has to live out their message before they deliver it. And so as we read this passage, it speaks to us in numerous ways. And another layer in this is seeing how Isaiah is actually changed and shaped to be a messenger. We see him being awoken. As someone who was really devoted to God, he worshipped and honoured God. It actually was in a form of worship that he had this vision of God, seeing him on the throne room. But it's almost as if Isaiah had never fully seen God. His worship was kind of like this orthodox kind of worship that he had. It wasn't of a man who was in love. But as soon as he sees God, that all changes. Something in his heart cries out. And that's where you read in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So usually in the Old Testament, if you see God, you die. That's kind of just how it goes. A bit intense, but God's holy, and we're not, and so that's, that was the result in the Old Testament. And so no wonder Isaiah's like, whoa, whoa, I can't be here. What's going on? Oh, my goodness. But in that moment, like immediately, the seraphim picks up the coal and comes and puts it on his lip. Something that's meant to burn and scar actually brings cleansing and healing and grace. It's so powerful. And in that moment, he recognizes the grace that is being given to him. And he wants to stay there. No longer does he want to run. He wants to be there. In the context of the whole Bible, that coal is actually Jesus Christ. It symbolizes his work on the cross. He was sacrificed on the altar. And do you know what? It's the power of his dying love that can awaken us as well. I'm just going to say that one again. It's the power of his dying love and only that power that can awaken us. When the magnitude of that grace touches Isaiah, he is awakened to live for God. Something happens in that moment when he comes before him. He's no longer afraid. I've been a part of running two different alphas now, and I love, love being a part of that. It's amazing to witness someone meet Jesus. Um, and something I've noticed when that happens is you journey with people. It's, it can be really tough to see them kind of going up and down and also really exciting But what I've noticed is often the closer they get to meeting Jesus, the more they realize they need him or they see the things in their world and in them that isn't right. It's this crazy moment of just like, God, I can't believe I've never seen this in myself. This is intense, but I also really want to know more. And I know that actually you're the only answer to what's going on. You're the only place of freedom. And so it's like this back and forth that happens as they understand more and more of who God is. And what happened to Isaiah is when he was in that throne room and he saw God, he saw himself for the first time clearly too. And that's what happens when we see Jesus. It doesn't matter whether we've never seen him before, yeah, whether it's our first time or something that we keep coming back to, there's this moment that we see ourselves clearly. And he wants to heal and restore and cleanse us, but also remind us of who he is. I asked someone the other day what it looks like when they spend time with Jesus when they spend time with the king, and they said in such a beautiful way that they become less and more in the right proportions. They become more themselves because they recognize they belong to Jesus. They feel his love. They feel a place with him. But they also become less because they recognize that they're in the throne room and they're sitting and standing or kneeling before a king 
When we spend time with Jesus, we become less and more, all in the right proportions. And again, it's that powerful love that is the only thing that can awaken us. And you know what? I think I say this to myself as much as to anyone else here, that sometimes we really need that awakening. When did we become blind to what he's doing? When did we become deaf to his voice? When did we stop and hide our hearts away from his love? From the wonder and power of King Jesus. When did that happen? What does it look like to be a people who see, who hear, and who want to understand with our hearts? I think one of the best ways to see that is to look at children. I have a niece who is four now, and I love her. I've told stories about her before. Um, But I really enjoy spending time with her for numerous reasons. But one of my favorite things about spending time with a four-year-old is that you know exactly what's going on by watching their face. You can tell when they're angry at you or when they're happy. You can tell when they're about to do something cheeky just by reading their face. I love it. It's incredible. They are just fully present with you. They wear their heart on their sleeve. I've been caught off so many times spending time with Autumn when we're like, I don't know, at the park on a swing or we're cooking together. There's a lull in conversation and she just turns to me and says, I love you, Auntie B." And I'm like, oh, I love you too. That was cute. And she kind of just goes on with things like it's nothing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, cool, yeah, we'll keep doing stuff. But just that ability to be so present, something that's happened recently. Um, when she was younger, I would often, you know, spend time with her and say goodbye. And she'd give me a big hug and it was really cute. And now she's a bit older. She's like, I'm cool. I'll see you later, Auntie B. I'm like, okay, see ya. I cuddle, that's fine. Anyway, I walk out, and this keeps happening, and it's so cute. I walk out, maybe I have a cafe or at home, and then I start to hear these little pitter-patter of feet chasing me. She's like, Auntie B, wait, wait. And I turn around, and she gives me the biggest hug. And she's like, I love you, Auntie B. Just so desperate to tell me and remind me, hey, I love you. Don't forget. When was the last time we did that with Jesus? When was the last time we ran to him and we were just like, Jesus, I love you. I love spending time with you. I want to see you and know you. I want to be vulnerable before you. I'm so thankful that you came. When was the last time we did that? Dallas Willard talks about this. He says that growing up is largely learning how to hide behind our eyes, hide behind our faces and hide behind our language. As you get older, you don't have so many emotions on your face anymore, although I need to learn how to do that one a bit better. But anyway, (laughs) we hide. We hide our hearts because it feels unsafe. That's what growing up is about. And we harden ourselves to the people around us. It means we don't connect as well to the people around us, the people that we love. There are moments where we reveal our emotions. Sometimes we can't help it. In those, maybe it's a movie, or maybe, you know, something a bit more serious, a loss of something. And in those moments, we love it and we hate it because we see the freedom of actually fully feeling our emotions and understanding that, but also the fear of being so exposed. When did we start hiding? If you ever look at the spiritual um, giants, if you go back to reading about some of them in the years that have passed, a lot of them describe to have childlikeness because they grow in their vulnerability before God. They know how to be present with him. They return to that childlike way of being open to him. They're genuinely present with the people around them and to God. And do you know what? Our senses are just 
assaulted constantly. The things that we see with our eyes, let alone what we hear. The society we live in also dulls us and makes us blind to these things. And it has an impact, as I said, on the people around us, but also to our relationship with God. But I believe this Christmas is an invitation to come closer, to step in closer, to use our eyes and ears to enter the story and recognize the king that has come. I don't know about you, when I think about the nativity or even when I see the nativity, I'm always at a distance kind of watching it. Is that where you guys are? You know, it's kind of all happening and there's animals. And you've seen Mary and Joseph and it's like, oh, that looks good. That's exciting. I love seeing that. What if Jesus is actually saying, no, come, come in. Come closer. Come right in. Come and stand on the straw. Smell the earth. Come and sit with me. Take it all in. I want you to see. The arrival of the king should stop us in our tracks. Should draw our attention, our eyes, and every part of us. Just as the wise men and the shepherds were drawn to Jesus, so was creation. There was a star that was drawn to stand over him. He's inviting us to come and see and bring all of ourselves to him. And what happens when we come close to Jesus? We feel at home. One of my favorite carols is O Holy Night, and one of the, I think, the best line. Um, Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. It's powerful. That's his invitation. Not only that, when we spend time seeking the king, we get to see the kingdom. It's like Jesus says, yeah, come in, come close. Let me show you. See this healing work I'm doing in you? Look, I'm also doing it in others. Look at where I'm at work in this world. I am here, there is hope. I have come to change the world, to bring reconciliation, to restore it. The desire you have for reconciliation is my desire. It's part of that bigger story we're a part of. He wants us to partner with him in that, to see him, to spend time with him. Raymond Olin says that it is his grace alone that awakens us and qualifies us as his voices to our generation. So as we spend time with Jesus, as we begin to understand what it's like to stand in his presence, to become less and more in the right proportions, as we encounter that grace in our own lives... What a, we carry that authority to speak about that grace in the world, to be voices to the generation that we find ourselves in, just like Isaiah, to be messengers of the king. Do you know what? Isaiah had it pretty tough. The people he was speaking to didn't really listen to him. As we read in that passage, their hearts were hardened. But why did he keep speaking out? Why did he keep doing that? There's only one answer. What he saw was real. And we need to see it too. To embrace it rather than push it away. To come close, fully into what Jesus has. Fully with him. Because you know what? Christmas time, the nativity, everything that comes with it, it's not just a story, it's a reality. And there's an invitation in to live that right now, here and now. That's why he's come. And that's why he's coming back. We can live in that reality. So let's not just be a generation. 
of God's holy people who just go through the emotions of another Christmas. No, let's be people who choose to see and hear and understand with our hearts what he's up to at this time, what he's doing. Let's be people of hope and joy and life. Let's choose to be people who spend time seeking the king and seeing the kingdom. As I said, at the end of Isaiah 6, 13, there's that little, little passage that just says, but as terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And in Job, there's another passage that speaks about this, and it says, there is a hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Jesus has already won The victory is already here. That reality is happening here and now. He is a part of those sprouts. And we are a part of that too as he shapes and forms us to be a part of what he wants to do. It's good and it's exciting. I love Advent. I love Christmas. And I love being able to celebrate with the king. And so I want to invite you to do that this Christmas as you worship, as you you listen to carols, as you sing carols, as you read about the nativity, bring yourself fully there. Look, listen, bring your heart before Jesus. Let's honor the king with our full presence. I'm going to pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for people like Isaiah. We thank you for the message that you delivered through him, God. And we just thank you for the gift that Jesus is, has been, and continues to be. We thank you that he has come, that there is a victory, that he still walks around now. And we desire to be people who come before the king. And so may you form and shape us as we place ourselves before you time and again to be more ourselves and to understand you as king and lord of our lives and of this world. Thank you, Father. Amen.